Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I'm joined by Alistair Roberts. Uh, Derek and Andrew are not with us, uh, except in spirit, uh, which is a terrifying thought if you pause to think about it. Um, we are joined today, though, in their absence, uh, by Matthew the Greater, we'll call him. Uh, Matthew Arbo um, is Assistant Professor of Theological Studies and Director at the Center uh, for Faith and Public Life at Oklahoma Baptist University. Um, Matthew is a friend of Mere Orthodoxy and Mere Fidelity. He's uh, written for Mere Orthodoxy before. Matt, have you been on the show before? I've not been on the show before. Oh, so this is the first go with you. Well, well welcome to mm-hmm. Mere Fidelity. Um, a virgin um, voyage. Yeah, yeah, right. That's exactly right. Um, most especially for our purposes today, Matthew is the author of uh, a terrific book, Walking Through Infertility, Biblical, Theological, and Moral Counsel for Those Who Are Struggling. Um, I like this book a lot, Matthew. I, In fact, as I... Uh, relook at it. Um, I see my name on the uh, the back cover as endorsing it. So, uh, congratulations on landing such a terrific endorsement. I mean, you really you really went to the top there. Um, but for it is a very serious benchmark. Yeah, that's right. Um, but for readers at home who might be interested in. Uh, what I have to say about it, I, I say Matthew Arba's sensitive and careful discussion is alive to the struggles couples face, yet concerned about the ethical temptations that arise within them. Uh, this is a help, very helpful volume with theologically grounded counsel that lay leaders and pastors should weigh carefully. So there's my official formal endorsement of the book, um, Out of the Gate. And today we want to talk about the book and sort of uh, issues surrounding infertility is a hard subject for a lot of people, um, and so we have to recognize that. But Matthew, you have now, having now written the book on it, um, walk us through your um, motivations. Why why did you take this up as a subject, and um, what do you think you've learned about the subject through the process of writing and talking with people about this? I took it up initially for personal reasons. My um, younger brother and his wife were, were infertile for many years. And uh, then we had, in different places, some close friends who experienced prolonged infertility. And um, so we just had these close personal contacts, even though uh, my wife and I haven't experienced infertility ourselves. We've just been with people in close company uh, frequently who've gone through that. So there was the personal element, but then um, as I was becoming an elder at our church, um, some some more complicated challenges arose in a pastoral context that got me thinking about pastoral counsel and how to sort of offer moral advice for couples that are thinking about how to set some limits to their um, to fertility treatments. And so uh, I ended up having conversations with elders in our church about that and helping them, uh, helping us together sort of um, learn how to do that well and to, to formulate good advice, sound biblical advice, theological advice. So um, it was so it was first for personal and then for pastoral reasons. And the second part of your question about what I learned, goodness, I, I, think, I think I've learned that um, I'm not saying anything close to everything that needs saying in this book. <laughs> um, and I, I think, um, I'm much more awake to, um, 
the 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 deep feelings that couples who have experienced infertility have um and and their complexity that there's not a, there's not uh in other words a standard case uh there, there this is a this is a, a type of experience but it's atypical in all of its sort of discrete manifestations and i think i i think i understood that in concept but it's taken i think writing the book and thinking more about how to give advice um what advice giving is like and that sort of thing it's um, made me see that there's much more complexity here than i could have imagined i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this particular issue as one that has so many um objective ethical issues bound up with it but also the deep feelings, as you've already mentioned, that um, are experienced by people who are struggling with infertility. How do you navigate an issue where you have many of the objective ethical considerations around adoption and around IVF and other sorts of treatments? And yet on the other side, you have to recognize just how tightly entangled this is with people's sense of self, with their concept of their relationship with each other and all these other things about their relationship with their body whatever it is how do you speak pastorally in a way that is both firm but yet also sensitive yeah that's a great question um i think i decided early on in the conception of the book um to try to um enlarge uh, in a way, a large, the affective world for couples in, in a way, uh, my feeling in, in the past has been that and couples go through this, is, especially at first, there's sort of a closing down to this particular experience that it becomes in a way sort of totalizing, at least on, a, on, a, on an effective level, sort of totalizing it, it occupies so much uh, mental space and affective space and um, becomes just a, a source of vexation. And, um, I wanted in the book to invite readers to enlarge their pictures of themselves, but also of God's work in the world and of God's purpose for them. So they could expand their own horizon and see themselves doing something a little differently and occupying a world, occupying the world a little differently than they may have envisaged. Um, so the, the idea then was to try to walk that line you mentioned of directness. So saying something about say what the the narratives in the Bible say or about uh, their responsibility to commit themselves to the church and to be committed to by the church. Um, and, and these, th those two examples um, sort of serve to show just how the, the broadening um, and the situating of themselves within a wider um, context to wider world. And, um, and so one of the ideas I sort of pitch in the book is, uh, you know, a suggestion or an invitation to them not to think about infertility necessarily as a sort of indictment or punishment, but possibly as an invitation um, to um, have a to to have a different sort of family and uh, to understand themselves as a different kind of family and that that's something God is giving them and and so participating in God's life and mission. And uh, that's not going to be easy, that there's still this sort of ongoing pastoral invitation. I can't do that as the writer, obviously, but their church can. So if they take something to heart in the book, then hopefully they'll commit themselves to people who also promise to commit themselves to them. Um, so that's how I begin, I think, to, to, to sort of very delicately chart an answer to that question. I think um, but that's just the beginning of an answer, I feel. 
Uh, Matthew, I'm curious, you know, within that um, church as family, framing a, a, a different kind of family, are you worried at all? Or how do you how do you balance that with um, avoiding creating unrealistic expectations for what the church can and should do for people, right? Like, is it, it, yeah, is it, it, are you like, it seems to me that that part of the problem of infertility and and that kind of solution is that people then come to the church with massive expectations, looking for it to compensate for a kind of gap or absence in uh, their natural family lives. And it's not necessarily clear to me that the church is meant to play that compensatory role, that that replacement role. Um, How do you balance that? Am I thinking about that wrongly? No, I don't think. No, it's a danger. It is, uh, especially if the couple um, begins to see the church as some uh, as understand it as a, a candidate for replacement, and um, because uh, I think you're right, there's going to be something of a shortage. I don't think it's a sort of one to one correspondence like you're suggesting. And um, it, it is, it is a danger, and um, I, I don't. I think the the way I, I was thinking of it and still am is. That there, there is something incrementally they can do, um, and this is this is a kind of provisional advice, but um, which is to form practices of trust, um, and that won't be a replacement, but it it may be a a, um, a supplemental resource that uh, the community of faith can supply. It won't uh, again it won't be identical to family, but. Um, some of what happens in family and what only family provides uh, can be supplemented by that community. I think I think that's maybe as strong as I want to put it right now. But you ask a very good question. I mean, I don't. Um, I think I need to reflect further on 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 just like the depth of that. In your book, you give some examples of biblical accounts that speak to the experience of infertility, and one of these, and I could list a number of them that can make this illustrate this point but one of these is the story at the beginning of first samuel with um the infertility of hannah and her weeping in the temple and in that relationship you talk about um the relationship between elkanah her husband and hannah and how he's doesn't give the most sensitive of word to her when he says am i not better to you than 10 sons but yet there's within Mm -hmm. that situation i think there are a number of different um people involved that express part of the tensions that can arise in cases of infertility there's um penina who's this um competitor this person who's just by virtue of the fact that she has children is seen as a rival and is experienced as someone who her very presence can be experienced as a sort of judgment then you have Elkanah, who truly loves Hannah and wants to give himself to her, but yet she can't give him herself back because she's mourning and weeping over the fact that she's barren. And that barrenness is not just something that they're struggling with together, but it's something that's creating a force that's driving them apart, that's stopping the fruitful love and reciprocity of that from occurring in their in their marriage. How do, 
how does the experience of infertility teach us about test and teach us about the deeper significance of marriage? Um, it's a particular form of the vocation of marriage, but it is also an experience that maybe highlights certain aspects of the vocation of marriage that aren't brought so much to the fore in the case of um, children, families with many children. How can we speak to the loneliness of the pain that is caused by infertility and then how marriage can be a response to that and find itself stronger as a result? Yeah, uh, that's a, another good question. Um, my experience with, and uh, especially on a pastoral level, and my contact with couples who have experienced infertility, especially in early stages, um, that it's it's complicated for them. But it, what's pretty obvious when I'm having a conversation, it's not uni not uniform, um, but it's 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 very frequent. Uh, there's um, definite signs of marital strain. So it's not surprising that that would appear in the text that you mentioned in First Samuel, and um, the sources of that strain I think are uh, identifiable by the couple themselves. That um, there are instances of harboring some deep resentment, um, and there's just, of course, the like, pathological human tendency to blame <laughs> uh, as a, as a way of explaining um, a particular kind of experience and. Um, so the marital strife and the marital strain um, is in a way exacerbated. It's exacerbated by um, this sense of despondency or a fleeting hope, a hope that's, uh, that seems to be diminishing somehow or that's under threat, uh, that the hope itself is just being uh, drained because there's fear about the possibility, just the mere possibility of childlessness. And at least many couples, you know, um, in, in, in way of release, sort of taking it out on each other. Um, and I think, and how did you say that last part, that second part of your question? I think it was really carefully put, if you remember how you put it. I can't recall exactly how I put it, but what I was looking for is a discussion okay. of how it leads to a, an understanding of marriage more broadly, that placing marriage under this particular sort of strain maybe highlight something about marriage that is important for every single couple to understand. Um, I mean, there are, there are the marriage vows and sickness and health and um, all, all these sorts of the sense of even in these hard times. And childlessness is a very specific mm -hmm. experience that brings about the challenge of lo the loneliness of pain and how marriage responds mm -hmm. to that is I think significant for telling us something of what marriage can and should be. Yeah, I see now. Um, I, it, I think uh, it's, it's something in there and the way you put that uh, points us in the right direction that the couple is in covenant, uh, in covenantal marriage for one another's good. And to be um, accountable to that promise before God uh, means mutual care and uh, gentleness, uh, despite the pain and anguish or anxiety that childlessness represents in a routine basis, that um, they see one another as sources of consolation in what ways they can. Um, but the stress point would be on the on, on nurturing. Um, I, I like the language of cherishing rituals. I don't know if that's uh, something you've ever heard before, but um, 
the, these practices of lifting one another up. And, um, that, that, that doesn't require, um, you know, routine, how routine, you know, that is a couple can decide for themselves, but, but actually engaging in practices, which affirm the covenant that they've made, um, and sticking to that. And so therefore, um, when an instance like when childlessness comes up or even the threat of infertility arises, um, they can lean on one another in ways which God has given them to lean um, and resource one another in ways that God has resourced them. It doesn't mean that the anguish won't um, be pronounced, but it does mean that they'll have something under them and with them to draw on uh, so that they may not be totally undercut. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew, can I ask, um, within the uh, purview of the Old Testament, I mean, your, your discussion of how the Old Testament frames infertility begins with Genesis 1, 28, which is a very natural place to begin, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, you frame this as a duty, um, and... Um, I'd I'd like to hear you expound a little on why you think it's a duty and what you think hangs on it being a duty for those who are infertile, like how framing it that way structures the experience of infertility. And I ask this question because I, I, it's a common reading, particularly in Mm -hmm. sort of Protestant um, moral theology. And it, it makes no sense to me as a reading. Um, <laughs> like it just, it, like I'll just be putting my cards on the table. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like, like framing it as a duty. I understand grammatically how that works, but, um, the reality is that within the rest of the old Testament, um, fertility seems to be deeply intertwined, not with imperatival language, but with blessing. Right. So, so mm-hmm. po- population mm-hmm. growth is, um, a significant sign of the Lord's favor on Israel. Um, and understanding, understanding fertility as a, as a blessing versus a duty seems to significantly, um, change how those who are denied children or not given children, whatever the right language is, it, it seems to significantly change how they understand their own experience and what they might uh, draw from those experiences uh, for their understanding of who God is and what God wants for the world. So I, I, I'd be interested to hear your, yeah. your understanding but of there, how these two themes reconcile and what you make of them. Yeah. So there may be... Uh, this is a, one of the books where I think are kind of book where there may be other editions. So what I'll say is, so what I want to say in the book and which um, should be more clear. And, if, and it sounds like a faithful reader uh, like yourself, if, if, if there seems like there's some ambiguity and there might be, but um, the idea was to, to describe the duty as a, as an obligation to openness. Um, and then that, and then to broaden so that there's some duty to remain open to children but that, and I, because I'm mindful um, that carrying that forward, or in other words, uh, maintaining that imperative or language, um, carries certain um, troubling implications for it, which you've already identified in the question. Um, so I'd, I'd rather say um, that there's a sort of responsibility in marriage to be open to children, 
but uh, that, but if I carried that forward, then it would mean that um, couples who could not do so, could not hold the, uphold their obligation, are irresponsible, right? Or, or are under some sort of uh, indictment or some sort of penalty for failing to do so. And I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't want to say that. Um, and would affirm that the that that reading of the biblical text that children and uh, the giving of children are a gift. Um, so it's if if there's some it may mean that there's some uh, ambiguity in that construction of the argument. You talk about marriage as primarily a sort of um, has its its root in some sense in a sort of friendship, and in many ways I, f- I find that helpful. But I wonder whether one of the things that children bring to a relationship is an outward orientation and the ordering of marriage towards the bearing of children. Um, it's very structured. Whether children are born or not is something that orders marriage outward as a sort of um, creation of the couple's love as something that's not just for themselves, but for a wider body of people, something that is hospitable, that creates a world into which others can enter, but also something that goes out into the world and extends to other parties. How can the church in particular facilitate couples expressing that orientation of marital love in situations where they are infertile? Wow. Um, hmm. That's a very challenging question. Um, and, and somewhat unanticipated. Could you maybe uh, unpack a little bit m- more? I think I think I see what you're sort of getting at in, in terms of the church's resourcement and, and companying with infertile couples. Um, yes, and Oliver Donovan talks about this. One of the things that gives dignity to the bond of marriage is that the couple's love is not just for themselves. And it's not just a project that's directly ordered towards children. That gives dignity to the child too. So the couple's love is not just for themselves. It's something that has a a natural tendency to venture out, to create a world, and also to um, go out into the wider world and give life to others. And then on the other hand, the presence of children is something that gives... um, it gives gravity to the, the love of the couple, but also it gives the fact that the couple relate directly to each other and it's through that love that the child is born. It gives dignity to, to that child. Now, in the case of an infertile couple, mm-hmm. they are still engaging in the fundamental practices of marriage, which give that orientation, whether they bear children or not. And within the life of the church, I think there might be some ways in which we can um, realize that natural tendency in other respects that um, childlessness is a form of the calling of marriage and it's not something that does away with that fundamental ordering of marriage but it involves a quest for different forms of its realization um, and I was wondering just how can churches really help that and also be served by that orientation because we talk about the church as a family but one of the things that makes church a family is this 
character of love, that it's not just for the couple themselves, but it's something that ventures out and also creates a home for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's helpful, I think. Um, I, I think I, I can, I'm, the question prompts me to think about, naturally, about what we're doing in our own church, um, consciously, uh, to bring into community, to the sharing of gifts, um, all sorts of people, some married, uh, some uh, not married, some uh, married without children, some married with children. So we have, like many churches, an eclectic range of people at different ages. And um, I, th- I think uh, in some ways with the writing of the book, but even really before that, there was a, a conscious thinking of, uh, particularly among like elders and pastors, about um, the sort of church that we're pastoring and uh, who are, who is a part of our community and how do they feel about, uh, in a way, effectively about their participation in life of the community. And when, and so I, I think there's been some sense that um, the, 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 there's been conscious, in a, in a way, a conscious dismantling of hierarchy, in, uh, at least in terms of familial order, you know, that there, and this is sort of latent in a lot of um, particularly American evangelicalism. Uh, that, that there are families and families with children have a certain status and that then they're on down and uh, and that there's there's different sort of it's almost like a chain of being frankly about uh, how they participate and, our, and I think there, there's, there's a way for churches to dismantle that uh, gradually and the, the way it's done is is simply by uh, in in practice and in effort um, drawing people together in ways that affirm them where they are with uh, but, but that cast that in within a nexus of community and sharing. So uh, they, they see themselves as a giver and receiver of gifts. And that, that's at least in, in one of the things that's happening in family um, is the giving of, and receiving of gifts, uh, giving and receiving of goods. And uh, so also of order, you use the language of ordering, which is important of ordering life together. And um, families have something to receive from single people and you know, families with children have uh, things to receive uh, from individuals who are unmarried and they have things to receive from individual couples who are married without children and so on and so forth. But, uh, but, but being for one another in the way a family is can be broadened, you know, be identical to the nexus of the nuclear family, but it can be broadened for the receiving and giving to, and the encouragement uh, for others. And maybe that I'm, I'm slightly missing up on missing part of uh, the question of the uh, how part of that question. But um, I, I think it will mean some perseverance and patience and gentleness and and, and some good listening uh, to foster the sort of bonds which um, make more stark forms of demarcation uh, less meaningful. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, Matthew. I So there are two tasks um, one is the theological description of these realities. And this is kind of how I read your book, right? Like you are, you're trying to provide um, couples a way of understanding what it is they're going through uh, within the purview of the gospel. And so there's a, there's a theological description, but then there is a, a task of making practical judgments about what should and should not be done. And part of those practical judgments are um, further theological descriptions about the nature of the church and their relationship to the church and opening up people's imaginations such that they might uh, see the ways in which uh, their church lives might um, help them 
uh, understand their own infertility and how their own infertility might help the church understand its own task and vocation. But then there is the the further practical question just about um, what sorts of treatments, if that's the right term, for um, cases of infertility are licit. You seem averse to uh, saying no in uh, any um, sort of just absolute way. Am I reading you rightly? Is there a reluctance to to draw hard lines here um, and to say that certain treatments or forms of responding to uh uh, whatever infertility is, um, are absolutely prohibited. There's, um, no, no, I mean, there, there's a sense which I'm trying to walk a delicate pastoral line, um, where, and I, 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 I think I come up to say that I, uh, say something like I caution in the strongest way against, um, and there may be another place where I say, at least with IVF, that it'd be impermissible. Um, I think I'm, I'm trying, uh, trying to remember where those appear. I've revisited that recently and try to see what exactly I said, because, um, but I, I mean, the strong, when I say cautioning in the strongest possible sense, like, uh, that it shouldn't be done. And I, I think maybe I had in mind in constructing it, the couple who would be reading this book and who has already proceeded, <laughs> Uh, and who uh, I would like to invite into further reflection on what they do, and I kind of come back to this uh, that that particular experience later on um, for the couple who has proceeded and may face a serious number of or, or a, a very you know challenging number of other um, decisions to make. But I a, a verse I, I'm not a, a verse I guess I, not in principle anyway. Uh, I think I'm trying to just sort of walk a delicate pastoral line without trying to push the reader away too quickly. Um, but I'm open. But I but I realize in doing that I'm I'm open to that reading. No, that's I, helpful. I get that. So I mean, you you think that in vitro fertilization is in principle permissible. Um, you caution against the creation of multiple embryos in that process. Um, so you uh, commend in the strongest possible terms uh, only creating uh, one embryo and implanting one embryo at a time, whether or not that's um, a, uh, a f- possible use of mm-hmm. like an efficient way to do this and whether or not like mm-hmm. structurally that would have a home within the industry is I think a major question. Um, yeah. I think w- what I want to ask with respect to your understanding of in vitro, um, because I'll, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I all, I, I did seriously contemplate whether I should endorse the book because of that line. Um, mm. um, I, I, I had to give, serious pause uh, in my own reflection and my own practical judgment, because I think you're wrong yeah. on this. So let me ask this about, yeah. uh, about your understanding of IVF. Do you think that it is, so within that process, even if you only create one embryo, there will be a time w- in which the embryo is frozen, um, mm-hmm. preserved, as it were. Do you think that that's just uh, an intrinsically loving 
or respectful thing <laughs> to do to a human being. No, no. Yeah. And I, let, let me back, uh, to come back to the source. So that, that was the very, when doing final revisions, that passage is the one I lingered on longest. Mm-hmm. Trying to make a decision. And what I decided was what's in the book. And, um, but... So with, I mentioned a minute ago about the possibility of being a second edition. If there is, a, a Lord willing, a second edition, it will reflect a, ch- a change of mind. So since, since the book is released, um, through, I, I, I talked to my wife some about this and try to engage others. And I think, I've, and also just reflecting more theologically on it, um, I think I would not include that's that proviso and just simply take the line which I took at the outset of the project, which was to say that it would be in principle, it is in principle and in practice impermissible categorically. Um, that that's where I am now. Now the book's there. Uh, and when I talk about it on radio or, you know, like interviews with the ERLC last week, um, I'm just much more vocal about that, the impermissibility part. So trying in a way to affirm uh, that rather than to the, the the sort of proviso of only fertilizing one, um, and I wish I wish in a way I'm in, in saying this out loud. I wish I could return to like the thinking I had in mind at the time, but um, I I can't quite capture everything I was thinking of at the time. Um, it may have been I may have been bewitched by an article I was reading at the time. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but um, anyway, so I want to explain that part. Um, and to the, to the second part, no. I mean, it's, it is intrinsically uncharitable to freeze a child. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm, 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 I'm pleased to hear that. And I, and I, I mean, I asked the first question first about the hesitancy because I, and your, your point about the pastoral sort of sensitivity that um, prohibitions require is mm-hmm. well made and entirely appropriate and there's there there is just a fundamental difficulty about telling um uh couples whose uh, deepest longings uh, mm-hmm. are are being frustrated that there are certain means of satisfying those longings that might be available to them or at least trying to satisfy mm-hmm. those longings that would be mm-hmm. just you know, morally impermissible. And it certainly, I think, raises um, excruciatingly difficult questions for those who have undertaken uh, Mm -hmm. this procedure and been successful at it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And and from my standpoint, the neither the contemporary tradition of uh, theological reflection on either the Roman Catholic or the Protestant side, nor the tradition more broadly has um, mm. understood those pastoral problems or, or devoted very many resources to thinking through um, mm-hmm. what, how we should understand um, the successful uh, creation of people through um illicit means. Um, mm-hmm. so there, there's, there's a real problem there. Um, yep. and it's, and it, and it is a pastoral problem as you point out. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I appreciate hearing that you, um, that you have changed your mind on this. Yeah. I, I, and I've had 
some very awkward conversations uh, with couples and giving them very specific advice about what they should do uh, on moral grounds. And those conversations um, tend not to go very well. <laughs> mm. um, and there's, there's, there's uh, even sometimes a sense of just sort of ambivalence about the advice, you know, like they've, they, in a way that like a decision has been made and well, the, the practical effects will be what they are. Um, it's very, just very peculiar, kind of surreal, uh, and, and having them and in the after, like in the reflection on how they went, it's just very odd, but you're, you're absolutely right that there's, there's very little in the way of resourcement, pastoral resourcement. I wonder about the way that we approach these moral questions more generally, because there is the deep, um, effective element of struggling with infertility. And then there is the moral contours of the particular decisions that are involved. And in that deep, effective state, we are not always best situated to discern moral contours, and even when we do discern them, to observe them. And along with this, there's the mm -hmm. individualistic framing of big technological changes. And I mean, we are on the brink of massive changes in artificial reproduction. Just within the last couple of weeks, we've had a report of um, mice born with two mothers and using a sort of artificial reproduction. We have things like uh, artificial wombs on the horizon. We have um, creation of gametes from skin cells of humans, not just of, of animals. And we're reaching a point where we could think in terms of a sort of human reproduction 2.0. And this will be increasingly pushed because mm -hmm. the infertility is a rising problem. There was a report recently showing that um, men's sperm count has halved since our grandparents' mm -hmm. generation. Mm -hmm. And that is actually getting worse because the problems are inherited. Um, so even if all the environmental factors that are responsible were removed, the problem would not go away. And so we're facing an increased problem with natural reproduction, and then we're facing these new technological developments, each of which is presented to us in terms of compassion for people in positions of deep pain and struggle. How are we to reason effectively um, in such a situation and responsibly? Um, how can we take into account yeah. the ecological effect of technologies, not just how they respond to an individual um, struggle. Yeah. Yes, and all those um, those developments you mentioned are all pretty troubling um, and very complicated. They, um, the, that latter part of your question, um, and maybe we can come back to, to some of those technologies and particularly uh, maybe even talk about embryo adoptions if we have a minute. But um, that latter part of the question, um, I, I think we have the, the church will need to do some very basic things repeatedly, and which will be to say, who is a human? Um, what does it what does it mean to be human? All from distinctly biblical theological grounds. Um, what does it mean to um, to belong to one another in marriage? And what does it mean? I mean, these are very, some some basic questions. What are we doing when we procreate? Um, what are our purposes in procreation? I mean, so we're, what we're doing is effectively returning to some very fundamental theological principles, which are um, in in a way 
um, standing they they stand in stark contrast to sort of calculated utilitarian framing of medical research and of medical provisions and interventions. Uh, so much of the uh, of infertility treatment, particularly artificial reproductive technologies, are cast in in starkly these utilitarian terms. And uh, there's a couple of places in the book where I kind of point out how how this works. Um, but it seems to me that um, much infertility treatment is cast only in the utilitarian terms. That is, if it's available and you'd like that thing, and it seems like the advantages that way, the disadvantages, you should absolutely go forward with it. You know, I mean, of course, and some Christians will even describe this as, you know, well, this is God's, this is part of God's providence, the outworking of his kingdom and this sort of thing. I mean, I've heard all kinds of interesting ways of trying to rationalize it. Um, but I, I think it will take the church calling out the deception in that moral framing. And so also when it can, and I think this will be increasingly important of reminding and reasserting the truth of the theological principles, which we've, which have anchored us as a faith community for however many millennia. Um, and, and that, that, that truth will, will be the sort of, the sort of, um, that, I mean, that will be the grounds on which, uh, individuals and couples can then think through, uh, what it is that's being offered them without seeing it simply as a that's the next step in the medical journey. And that, that's, that's so much of what I hear um, from couples who have either proceeded with IVF as an example or with other more advanced reproductive technologies is it's just simply been con, con, uh, proposed to them as uh, or committed to them as just sort of the next step. You know, this is just your next intervention without much in the way of description and um, so the church is going to have to become, frankly, more knowledgeable, too, in what ways it can about what the actual treatments involve <laughs> and what sorts of uh, what sorts of challenges they bring. Hmm. Matthew, that's that's really helpful. So I, I, I'm interested by way of closing because um, uh, we're about out of time. Um, obviously, these are really personal issues uh, that, you know, infertility, um, whether it's secondary infertility or primary, uh, you know, these, these are points at which people's um, personal identity, their lives, their sense of well-being are fundamentally at stake. And I wonder um, what, by way of closing, you would say to those couples who uh, are in the midst of this, who um, are weighing up um, what the Lord has called them to. Um, how would you how would you counsel or encourage them? Yeah, it's a, a good, another good question. And um, I would at least initially return to that way of uh, I, I spoke at the beginning, which is uh, to uh, remember God's goodness and every good and in a way any every good and perfect gift comes from above and uh, that God's place and God's purpose um, for them is is broader than anything they um, may now conceive of and and that they, uh, they it's possible to see God's work even in this in, the, in this particular experience as being actually a step in, in, in a part of something much bigger and uh, that it's um, it's a part of a horizon that's that could be more expansive, and that they could begin to see is more expansive. And God's callings are discreet on people. And so, if this couple is going through this, that uh, I mean, the first sort of pastoral thing I would say is that God is with them, and that they are not estranged, 
that God is uh, mindful of their struggle, of their pain, and of their wound. Uh, and he's not forsaken them, but is actually calling them through their pain to be with him in the purposes he has set. And that's very difficult in the urgency and hardship and affliction of uh, infertility, especially in the earlier stages. Um, but it's essential that disciples of Jesus cling to him in faith and obedience and in love and uh, and vest their hope in him, right? that, that he is He is uh, our only hope and uh, his purposes for the church are sure. And they can rest in that. Uh, it may not, they may not um, deflate all the feelings of frustration or anger, or resentment or bitterness they may have or fear. Um, but this commitment they have to God together um, and his purposes for them can be anchoring, <laughs> at least give them orientation on themselves and on their lives. Um, so that's how I begin to frame up the pastoral exhortation that you know, God has uh, deep and wonderful things for his children. And um, that's far surpassed the urgencies of our current experience, even when they're deeply painful. That's a very uh, wise and encouraging final word. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, the book for listeners at home is Walking Through Infertility, Biblical, Theological, and Moral Counsel for Those Who Are Struggling. It's a, a really tremendous volume, Matthew. I, I mean, it really is very clear, and it's um, uh, it's it's. Uh, incredibly encouraging. And for those who are in the midst of this, it's, um, I, I love that you have pages at the end where you have blank space for personal reflections. It's, it's the right sort of thing to do in a book like this, uh, because, and it's a very good book for working through the effective dimensions, the emotional dimensions of this, but in a way that's theologically robust and sensitive. So thank you for your work, uh, Matthew, on behalf of the church. We were grateful for it. Um, for listeners at home, this has been another episode of Mere Fidelity. We're grateful for your time, for your attention. Um, shout out to all of those who have supported us on Patreon. We're grateful for your material support of this. And if you are interested in contributing to that, um, please do. We're always looking for new uh, supporters, please do uh, uh, visit us at mirrororthodoxy.com uh, to see the details on how to do that. Um, we will be back at some point next week uh, with another show. But until then, uh, go with God. And thanks for listening. <laughs>